What's going on, Beatle people? This is Ranking the Beatles. Welcome to our our second episode, our second full episode. Yes. Actually, number six, I think. Well, actually, because well, um, <laughs> I, I considered our intros and trailers right. the first four episodes. Right. So we're technically on number six, Correct. according to the official count on the platform. But whatever. It's our second time doing this. Yes. But um, yeah. How's it going? Pretty well. Good, good. For those of you, if you haven't heard the show before, my name is Jonathan Predis. Uh, over here on my left is my co-host, the most effervescent and beautiful Miss Julia Predis. Hello. Yes. Good to see you. Not that I don't see you every day, because you're my wife. <laughs> and we live together. And we live together. And, together and together. It's quarantine. So. We're spending a lot of time together these days. But I'm not tired of you yet. I'm not tired of you either. I yeah. like you a lot. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm a fan. Yep. I like it. I'm really excited about our show today. I am too. Our guest today is an engineer slash producer from Memphis, Tennessee, who for the last, I don't know how many years, was one of the in-house engineers at famous Ardent Studios. Ardent Studios is the home to legendary cult band Big Star. Uh, Led Zeppelin Three was mixed there. ZZ Tops, uh, Eliminator, and Afterburner were done there. Uh, these guys have cranked out some of the biggest records in history. Uh, Isaac Hayes, Hot Buttered Soul. I mean, just tons of stuff. Um, truly one of the great American studios. And for my money, Adam Hill is one of the great American engineers working in music today. Uh, he's the guy that's got his hands on all the major big star re-releases of the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, learned his craft from John Fry, who produced those big star records. Um, and as they've done all those re-releases, Adam's been the guy working behind the scenes on all those to make those things sound as stunningly beautiful as they do. Um, in addition to that, he's engineered records by The White Stripes, Rock and Tours, Against Me, Low Cut Connie, um, a whole list of people that just go on and on. He also worked on Klaus Vormann's record, A Sideman's Journey, uh, in Memphis, which we'll get into a little bit later on in the episode. We met Adam a few years ago when my band made a record at Arden Studios. He was our engineer, and we hit it off hard and fast. It was amazing to watch, honestly. I've had a man crush on this guy ever since, and uh, he always he always makes me laugh. He's got one of the greatest laughs of all time. Facts. It's 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 brilliant. I hope we can capture it um, in all in all its glory on the podcast today. Ooh, I hope we can make him laugh that hard. I don't feel confident in my humor. <laughs> um, that might be on you. We'll have to see what we can do. Fingers crossed. Um, he is joining us today via telephone. Via FaceTime, I guess. Everybody's joined us via FaceTime or Skype or something like that because uh, we're just still quarantined and social distancing is important. So until we can get together with people in person, we do it over technology. Uh, but he is currently ensconced in a cabin today uh, celebrating Father's Day with his family. But he's taken a few minutes to uh, step out of his, his celebration to, uh, to speak with us. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Adam Hill. How are you, my friend? Welcome. Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Glad to have you here on uh, only the second 
real episode of Ranking the Beatles. This is very exciting. I'm real excited to have you on here because one of the things that I liked when we first started working together was I realized pretty quickly that you and I were both like equal sized Beatles nerds. Yes, absolutely. It's always nice to kind of meet a a kindred spirit in that in that sense. Um, So let's jump into the let's jump into it here. So I guess the first thing I'd like to know from you uh, as as a fellow aficionado, what's your first memory of the Beatles? When did you first hear the Beatles or discover the Beatles? Well, my mom had she had the ink. No, sorry, the American version of Help and the White Album, which is the same on both sides of the pond. And she may have had a she may have had Sergeant Pepper, maybe. No, 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 she didn't. She I think she just had those two in the Hey Jude single. But she was a Beatles fan, mm-hmm. and um, and you know I I started digging around. I loved the radio. I remember hearing the radio from about five years old on, and then I guess I started you know getting from there into mom and dad's records well dad didn't really have any moms but um so i got way into the wide album and help and then i started um buying other lps they had just reissued i guess it was 80 well i got into them a little earlier than that but around 87 when they put everything out on cd they also put the english albums out in america Mm -hmm. so i remember buying um uh, the English version of A Hard Day's Night at Camelot Music at Rivergate Mall outside oh, yeah. of Nashville. <laughs> when you could go to the mall and you could go in the record stores. Um, and uh, and also, one time I bought a copy of Sgt. Pepper and the guy behind the counter was like, you got good taste, kid. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? Uh, I, I probably wasn't even driving myself to the mall. It, it was probably 87 or something, but I guess I was about 10 when I got into them and Somewhere between 10 and by the time I was 13, I got a guitar. They were the reason I started playing guitar. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn how to play those songs. Um, so, you know, by the time I was 13, I was a full on uh, Beatles freak card carrying member. Yeah, know? that is pretty rad. I think it's for never like, really gone away. And I think oh, that yeah. is pretty rad for someone working at a music store to have like some 10 year old kid like saunter up with his little like. You know, yeah, that was a lot of money. Lawn like money. Bucks. Yeah, oh yeah, the CDs are expensive. They come in the in the, in the long box oh, back yeah. in the eighties. Was 80s. it the long package? Well, actually, I was buying the vinyl. Oh, oh. They put, this was before they phased out all the vinyl, so that makes me even cooler. <laughs> nice. And are it, we it, even allowed to have you on this podcast? Like, you are way. Too I think cool you're a little us. too cool for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, and I'm I, sorry, we're gonna have to let you go. <laughs> I can remember like buying the White Album on cassette when I was a kid. And yeah. getting that same like cool validation from the record store clerk who was like, "Nice purchase, kid." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Being like, "That guy's awesome. I want to be like him." Blue smoke in your face, right? <laughs> so, as as I explained earlier in the in the intro, Adam is an engineer, producer. Obviously, the, uh, there's I can't even imagine what ways the Beatles and George Martin and their work have impacted your work. How would you say are like the key, the key things that you've brought to what you do from the Beatles? The importance of a song always factored into, to things, um, you know, as a producer and, and tightening things up. I, you know, I learned more about, they also led to my recording career. Cause especially when that, I think that recording the Beatles book came out in like 88, which meant I was, 13 
when I got that, and that was my first real exposure as to how the records might have been made. Mm-hmm. You know, they get into real technical detail, but I didn't know anything about engineering, so it was a treasure trove of recording information for the first time for me. Um, so, and it kind of, I don't know, it was something that continued on. You know, I worked at Ardent for many, many years when uh, John Fry and John Hampton were there, and they were all Beatles freaks too. You know, that's probably the reason John Fry started cutting records. But something that kind of, you know, JF, if he ever had a, a mentor or somebody that he kind of admired, it would have been George Martin. He even said once he was going to, he thought about taking a scoring class to learn how to score strings. But <laughs> by then, he was just too busy running the business. But to answer your question in a really roundabout way, just recording quality. You know, Mm -hmm. all those engineers trained by EMI, you know, they'd start as a T-boy and then they go to the cutting room to learn how to cut lacquers because they needed to know what could and couldn't get onto a record as far as bass content and, you know, frequency wise and time wise. So and then they would become an engineer. And then eventually, like Norman Smith, who engineered all the Beatles sessions through Rubber Soul, you know, he ended up becoming a producer Mm -hmm. and producing, you know, Pink Floyd, uh, the Sid Barrett, you know, the original lineup of Pink Floyd. Right. So I guess the thing, uh, just the recording excellence for what they had, they were pretty innovative. And that guy, Ken Townsend, the the technical engineer who ended up becoming, I think, general manager of Abbey Road, um, you know, he invented direct injection, you know, a mm-hmm. transformer in a DI box so you can plug straight in. And um, that ADT, that artificial double, oh, track, double tracking is an amazing innovation and could only really kind of it, it just kind of happened. He was lucky that it worked out, but it was his idea to even try it. Mm-hmm. And, it and they had a double tracking at Abbey Road where everybody else delays it and they'll vary the delay, mm-hmm. but it never gets ahead and behind like you would if you were manually double tracking a vocal. So, um, Abbey road had a way of automatic double tracking where you wiggle the oscillator, which would change the speed of the tape machine, but it could get ahead and behind, which is why the, the ADT on those records is different from any other kind of artificial double tracking that's ever been employed in the studio, you know, and purely invented because Lennon was lazy and didn't feel like double tracking anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm tired of singing my vocals twice. Right. He also asked George Martin, "Time is money, baby." Yeah, mime is money. Mime is money. Um, but he also asked George Martin once if they could uh, di his voice, and Martin, George Martin was like, "Nope, not unless we install a quarter inch jack on your throat." <laughs> and, uh, obviously he didn't take that route so uh, the other good one was john you know and uh tomorrow never knows uh mm-hmm. he said he wanted his voice to sound like he was the dalai lama on a on a, a hilltop yeah <laughs> george's uh martin's response to that well I, I don't know if we really have that in the budget to take you to the himalayas and record <laughs> there. um but maybe uh you know and then they were like well i'll plug you into this leslie speaker instead how about that and I loved his idea of hang me upside down from the ceiling and, and spin swing me, me around. around this microphone. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> like, well, we could just put run it through a speaker instead of letting the blood all rush to your head yeah. and, and you passing out at some point. Yeah, don't hurt the talent. 
And yeah, odds, or, the, or the Normans. Yeah. <laughs> and odds are by 66, Lennon's not the bastion of great health. So mm. swinging yeah, in from the microphone. Yeah, a microbiotic diet yeah. doesn't make for a robust physical form. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that sort of speaks to, like, most professions say, like, you can't break the rules unless you know them. Like, you know, yeah. they made sure that everyone was so good at their craft that it was like second nature to them. So when they had to get creative to like solve a problem or try and do something a different way, they were like, okay, well, this is how we would normally do it. I'm such an expert at this. Like, let's, it allows you to like totally think out of the box and like break all the rules to do something completely creative and different and change the entire industry. I right. mean, that's pretty amazing. Well, and another aspect of it was they had gotten Jeff, not that Norman. Uh, was stodgy or anything. I think by all accounts, everybody really liked that guy and he was a great engineer. But, you know, when they got to Revolver, they had Emmerich Engineering, who was, what, 19, yeah. 20 years old? Uh, yeah, nobody else wanted the gig. All the old guys wanted to go home at night and they're like, oh, those asshole Beatles or those those annoying Beatles like to record all night. I don't want to be here all night. <laughs> so, um, But Emmerich was up for it. They had a young guy that was up for uh, anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think it's interesting that that kind of spirit of not just not just innovation, but breaking the rules to innovate and like manipulation of things continued over the years. You know, talking with you and your work with Big Star, which I'll double back to later on, but knowing that when they're mastering number one record, wasn't Larry Nix manipulating the the lath cut to get all the frequencies on the record so that the needle wouldn't skip out? Yeah, yeah. Like having to like manually do it, like manually cool. Yeah, well, it was, yeah, it was Larry and really John Fry. I mean, Larry wouldn't, I don't think, I feel comfortable saying this, that Larry wouldn't have done that on his own. That was kind of JF. Knowing what he had worked, what he and Chris and the band had worked so hard to put together, he Mm -hmm. knew it would be a challenge to get it on the vinyl. Because when you have, like in the beginning of Feel, that acoustic pick, that. Those real high frequencies are tough to get onto lacquer mm-hmm. uh, without distortion. So, and they have these high frequency limiters because the high frequencies means the cutter head has to move faster, which means it gets hotter. And that cutter head is cooled. There's a helium tank mm-hmm. that blows onto the cutter head and keeps it cool. Because if you blow a cutter head, you're out tens of thousands of dollars. So, thanks. <laughs> So yeah, what JF was doing was kind of riding those high frequency limiters and the cooling helium to the cutter head mm-hmm. so that he could get the high frequencies on there. Plus, there was also in the middle of um, uh, Don't Lie to Me, Chris put an oscillator sweep. Right. <laughs> starts down, I don't know where it starts, kind of low mid-range and then sweeps all the way up, you know, to dog whistle territory. JF said they had to cut that side a few times because of that, you know, it would set it would set off the breakers on the on the high frequency limiters. So they had to yeah, they were manually, you know, 
riding the limiters and the coolant to to get it onto the record. So it's and and obviously successfully because that record is known for being sonically, you know, one of the best achievements in in rock recording. I think. Yeah, yeah it's a major it's engineer. Just, yeah beat really yeah <laughs> from top to bottom not to mention it's just a, a damn near perfect album <laughs> yeah that doesn't hurt you. again yeah. you got the songs right yeah it's you such a great songs. combination and a killer engineer so yeah let's uh let's jump into the pool as it were into the big rankings yeah I, i'm excited this is only the second time we've done it you ready drum roll please uh adam <laughs> can you give me a drum roll <laughs> coming in at number 221 is Mr. Moonlight. Mr. Moonlight. You came to me one summer. The song was written and released in 1961 by Roy Lee Johnson, released by a group he played guitar in called Dr. Feel Good and the Interns. That's a great name. It is. That's a really great name. <laughs> this was the B-side to their single, which was also called Dr. Feelgood. Uh, why not? Not a great yeah. name. So one <laughs> one of the things that the Beatles kind of figured out early on was that they could really separate themselves from the other bands in the scene if their repertoire involved songs that weren't like the popular covers that everybody was doing. If they had so- something that was a little more... A little different that stood out from the pack it kind of let them stand out so they looked for more obscure tracks and b-sides and things that led them to kind of choose more off-kilter stuff like three cool cats or chic of araby or till there was you (laughs) and it also broadens their chance for appeal because it brings in other songs and sounds and things that appeal to not just the teen audience but like some of the older crowd as well the more mature crowd Uh, a pretty smart savvy way to look at it for 19 20 year olds i think and then obviously once they bring mr moonlight into their repertoire other bands start to pick it up and cover it because as the beatles popularity rise or rises everyone's trying to start looking at what they're doing for the pulse of where to go um so you start to get other covers of it as well unfortunately by the time they release it on beatles for sale it kind of turns into what it is known as um So I'm just going to kind of dump in, jump into my thoughts on this a little bit. You know, it, it starts out so, so promising. Lennon's vocal at the top of this song is just, it's such a standout moment. And it's like, it's like watching an Olympic diver, like jump off the high dive in pure, perfect form. And as he gets to the water, just belly flops the shit out of it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> And that that vocal intro is from an earlier session. Um, I think they did four takes of it that day. And then they returned to it later in the month and got the rest of the track. And on oh, that, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I on should that, have done my homework. Ah, see, that's why I send the assignments out, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and on that first on the, on that first session, after the, they do four tracks of this, they take a 10-minute break, and then they come back and cut Leave My Kitten Alone. Yeah. which sits in the archives for 30 years and is probably the biggest uh, omission in their catalog to not release that song. Yeah, um, it certainly would have it certainly rocks harder and Oh yeah. It's a better you know and honestly um oh wait that was little Willie John. Whenever yeah. you know when the cover uh I was about to say Larry Williams. Mm-hmm. The, I mean the vocals are just searing on oh, that. Yeah, and they are on, on hitting alone and 
and honestly, the intro of Mr. Moonlight, you know, yeah. he just the vocals are impressive, even if the track lays a little flat, you know. Yeah, and you, you can tell, like, he's just, you know, when you compare, when you look at that and then what, and then Leave My Kitten Alone, he's just in great vocal form on that day, you know. He'd and warmed t- up. <laughs> he'd warmed up well. You yeah, know, and like then when you hear that vocal, you're like, oh, this is going to be a great song. And then you're like, oh, okay. And then, okay. And, then is, and then the rest of the track. The track itself comes from a, a day where they they had a nine hour session in which they recorded I think seven songs or eight songs, and this is at the end of the day. So like they've worked their ass off all day, combined with the rest of their insane work schedule. So they're tired to say the least, you know. It's my understanding George Martin, Dick James, and Brian Epstein worked out a schedule mm-hmm. of. Uh, what was it? Four four sides per year, which would be uh, two singles and two albums a year. Mm-hmm. You know, so they'd have product. You know, around the summertime when it was touring, and then they'd also have Christmas product. Yeah. out a little, yeah, and then the big Christmas market. So, mm-hmm. Beatles for sale was at the end of '64. So they were, you know, '64. They'd had this um, insanely busy year. And they're still trying to pack in a record at the end of the year. Plus, they were doing like a string of Christmas shows mm-hmm. in London. And, you know, yeah, a lot going on with those dudes. So, yeah, and I think that exhaustion kind of, I think it comes through on the track. I find it interesting, especially compared to the original and some of the other versions, they really lean into the Latin groove a little bit yeah. more, almost so much that it becomes like a pastiche a little bit. Like, it just seems kind of unnatural yeah, for them the Hammond organ sound is not even oh, like that organ cool. yeah Scream <laughs> organ. it's like grandma's Hammond organ in the front room yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know and it's it's so weird like in the parlor <laughs> and like it's so funny because like it kind of sits under the under the under the first couple verses and it's that like yeah. oh that's an, that's a texture our solo yeah you know the Hamburg version which rocks yep Uh, as, as guitar solo and then I listen to the outtakes that are on Anthology 1 where you're mm-hmm. talking about the original vocal um, or the v- original vocal intro um, and even that one George is playing this I don't I can't figure out who plays the lead on the Hamburg tape I guess it's George but it could be John because he could play that double stop lick because yeah. he plays the lead on Sweet Little 16 in Hamburg and it's awesome mm-hmm. Um and the good thing about those Hamburg tapes is the tape recorder was set up more in front of John's amp than George's. No offense to George. Right. I love him. But it's really, I've always been a huge fan of Ledin's rhythm guitar. Yeah, and same. he's really chugging on Mr. Moonlight and, and stuff in, in the Hamburg tapes. So, but and it that, was interesting to me that, the you know, George's guitar solo, it's, it's, it's really not good on that outtake. It's he's not, doing no. too much whammy bar. And I think they, they made the right decision, I think, to, yeah. to switch to something. I think they just switched to the wrong thing, unfortunately, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> well, not, like, you know how it is in the studio, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, you're just trying to, even if it's something you're not sure you're going to keep, you're just trying to finish it while you're there. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So that you can either decide later, oh yeah, that worked, we can keep it, or but you just don't want to leave it half finished. You want to right. finish what you've done that day, and especially. There, and, in those 
ways. Yeah, and there's something to be said, to, I think, to just committing to a sound and just saying, all right, just just do it. It's fine. We got to get out of here. And the yeah. the cover by the Mercy Beats, that one that uh-huh. um, I was do. That one doesn't have the organ, does it? Does it have the organ? I don't think it does. And it I don't has think that it does like either. really nice tambourine kind of yeah. instead of that like awful drum boom, <laughs> like just that awful noise. <laughs> Poor George. <laughs> so jarring. It's like, just like, oh, why is that there? Yeah. But the Mercy Beats version had this really nice, like, little like, tambourine, tambourine roll yeah. through the boots. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's, that's much more appealing to my ear holes <laughs> than that unfortunate <laughs> drum choice. But well, well, and something else I thought about, too, was that, um, you know, as busy as 1964 was for those guys, I mean, um, what they put out well with the Beatles was November '63, mm-hmm. uh, and then but then they had done Hard Day's Night, right? Which is the only album of all Lennon McCartney material. There's yep. no cover, no George, which is pretty amazing. It's like 13, 14 tracks, and then um, and not you know, a, not it, a clunker among them. Yeah, I agree. They're all killer, and um, and then what was the single from Beatles for sale? Was it um, uh, Eight Days a Week? No, no, no. It was I Feel Fine and She's a Woman was from those sessions. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight Days a Week was a single in America, but not in, it wasn't like this standalone single that's not on the record. You know what I mean? Dropping knowledge. The um, more you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, but then they, you know, there's, there's a lot of great original material on there, like Eight Days a Week and I'm a Loser and stuff, mm-hmm. but they're back to covers. They, like you said, they're just kind of running out of steam at the end of that year. I mean, they literally had toured. You know, not the entire world, but they, you know, they went everywhere from Holland to, uh, you know, America, Britain, uh, Canada, Australia. Um, yeah, Australia. They, um, you know, I, who knows where in Europe. They've been to Paris, I know. So they're just kind of, you know, you can see it on their faces on oh, the yeah. cover of Beatles for sale. They're <laughs> tired, man. They look tired. Yeah, they yes. need a nap. And what were you? What were you laughing about? The comment somebody made about George's oh, George's hair, hair looks like looks a like a garlic, garlic. <laughs> a perfect head of oh, garlic. <laughs> no, M- McCartney's talking about it. He goes, "It's a turnip. It looks like, looks a, like turnip. a turnip." <laughs> He's got his little turnip top. It's all jumbly yeah, bumbly on his head. <laughs> and then he talks about George and in, in high school or whatever, or Liverpool University. It's, it's a fucking turban. <laughs> George is wearing a fucking turban. He had his hair piled up so high. You know? <laughs> I can't imagine the, the stuff that was in their hair at that point. Like, I feel yeah, like having grown up in the in the air, in, hair care in the age so. of hair products, you know, when he was just using Vaseline. Ooh, exactly. <laughs> how do you get that out? <laughs> mm. I'm gonna have to get like an older guest that lived through that life that might know. <laughs> yeah. Get a stick of butter, run it, <laughs> run your cup through it, mm. and get out the door. See, I th- I, so as much as people like to crap on Mr. Moonlight, there are some pros to it. You know, that intro vocal may be one of Lennon's top vocal performances because it's just so strong, and he's just yeah. such a beast oh, on it. Yeah. That, you know, those five <laughs> seconds are, 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 you know, worth their weight in gold, I think. Um, yeah, I also really like the outro of the song as they're just repeating Mr. Moonlight and McCartney's harmony is just kind of rising and stacking on it. I think that's a really neat, uh, neat move that I kind of wish they'd seen through without a fade out because I want to hear him resolve it. Right. I think that's a pretty yeah, cool they spot. Had a, 
I can't remember. I listened to the Hamburg thing, but now I can't remember how it ended. But obviously, I had a hard stop that worked real well. I be, I remember it worked. Uh, yeah. The other thing I love about the Hamburg thing is, you know, at that point, they're tired of Hamburg. That was their last trip. Sure. And um, Lennon is singing, here I am on my nose, begging if you please. <laughs> you know, oh. so typical Lennon-esque, you know. Let's, let's, let's go full circle here and put a bow on it. So Mr. Moonlight at 221 of 223, only behind Sleep Dich and Come Give Me a Dying Hand. Do you agree? Wow, you're even putting the German versions on there. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Do you do you agree with the rankings thus far, or would you put it in a different spot? Man, it's so hard for me to to rank Beatles tracks because there's so one, there's so many of them. Two, you know, your mood changes. One day you're in the mood for Strawberry Fields, and then the other day you're in the mood for birthday or something you know what i mean mm -hmm. or some days i want to go back and hear that early stuff because of the economy and the harmonies and yeah. all that stuff so good so i i i respect you just for being able to put them in a ranking order i would i would have gotten stuck there like before i even started a podcast so <laughs> i love that there's a beatles for every mood like you said like oh, yeah. if you want something like quick and to the point and snappy and like put you in a better mood let's hit up some early stuff you know if you want to yeah, like or even i heard your mother should know for the first time in years the other day and i was like what a that's jam a cool tune man that's a cool <laughs> tune and magical mystery tour is one of their so good i love that record. record i love that know? record but uh oh there's there's good stuff but i don't need to hear blue jay way you know, oh, that all heartbreak. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> you know what I've been really getting into lately, which is strange is, uh, Martha, my dear and honey pie have been like regular rotations <laughs> for me. Oh dude. If I had a desert Island disc, it, it, it would most likely, uh, Beatles desert Island disc. It would most likely be the white album. Yeah. That, that one dug deep into me real early on. Like I would just put on the whole side. Like my parents would leave the house like when I was 13 and I probably only had like a cheap hundred dollar Les Paul knockoff or, a, or maybe even just my gut string that I, my Yamaha that I got from my grandmother or whatever, but I would stand there, crank up the stereo, the vinyl and, and sing out loud and play what chords I could just to, you know, I remember thinking, Oh, I sound like them. You know? <laughs> They're like, no, you don't. But, Man, what if they asked me to join the band? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, that was the thing. My mom even pointed out. She's like, "Would you, you, would you wanted to be in the Beatles?" And then she's like, "Oh no, you wouldn't." I was like, "No, it would have ruined the balance." You know I mean? John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Adam. Now, I would have liked to have jammed with them, you yeah, know, or or, mm -hmm. or or Zeppelin. But no, I would. I don't need to be in the band. I, uh, no, I don't think I'd fit their image. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so just a couple of questions before we wrap up, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, with the work that you've had your hands in, I think some of the more well-known uh, releases are going to be from Big Star. Um, anybody who's listened to, who's listened to them, I think kind of knows and understands their tremendous Beatles influence that they have yeah. you know, that, that that's readily admitted. Even nowadays, Jody Stevens will still talk about how influenced they were by the Beatles and, and the British invasion. Yeah. They all, they all talked about the Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm. I, I think maybe even Alex said somewhere something about the Ed Sullivan show, but that, yeah, they all watched it. And Jody and his brother, Jimmy, uh, I actually went to see them at the Coliseum. They got kicked out because they were trying to get backstage. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Is that in 66? 
Yeah, that was 66. They did a, a matinee and an evening show in Memphis, and the Klan was outside. Yes, they yeah. were. Oh, wow. Hello, Memphis. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> what do you think were... Wait, hold on. They did two shows? Oh, yeah, they were, they were doing two shows a day on those tours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is bonkers. Well, I mean, the sets were only like yeah. 20, 25 minutes, you know? Oh, like, okay. Yeah. There's so it, that story it wasn't about... Like two one-hour or one-half-hour oh, no, no, no. show. No, okay. no, They were on stage for probably le- less than a half an hour each show. Uh, in fact, George Harrison, who hung with Zeppelin at some point, uh, he went, you know, when he was kind of in his party mode, I think, out in L.A., and he went to go see Zeppelin because obviously he knew Jimmy Page. And, you know, he knew the London folks, mm-hmm. if not Bonzo and Robert. But um, he was like, God, I don't know how you guys do it, playing two-and-a-half-hour shows. He's like, oh, the Beatles – you know, our set was 30 and we could cut it down to 25 to get out of there if we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny, like how far removed they were from, you know, playing for, you know, seven hours a night in Hamburg, six yeah, nights a exactly. week, you know, like that kind yeah. of work. And then they just got, you know, when John talks about the edges getting knocked off by the time they were successful and they're only yeah, doing a half hour. How frustrating it is that, you you know, nobody's listening, you yeah. know, you're just. You're just, you know, he's like, you could have sent four waxwork dummies out there past a certain point, you know. Yeah. Nobody could hear anything. There was no PA to speak of except for the house address system that the baseball announcers would use. So Right. One- Ringo would have to watch their bums to see where the where they were in the song. <laughs> Any good drummer knows about bum watching, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Any drummer worth his salt watches the bums. <laughs> Uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask about ask you, and this kind of ties in with everything, you know, especially being that this tune comes from the Hamburg days, I wanted to talk a little bit about your work on Klaus Vormann's record, A Sideman's Journey. I know you oh, did man, some engineering that on that on, on his sessions at Arden, huh? Yeah, the reason I got an engineering credit, I mean, the, there was an engineer, Jason Latshaw, that did the lion's share of the work, but J- Jason would be mixing in one room, and then on a few songs, I went in the, one of the other rooms and did some recording mm-hmm. uh so uh props to mr latshaw for that but i'm i did l- luckily get an engineering credit and i assisted on all the mixes and stuff that we did there and um but man meeting klaus was i mean to hear firsthand hamburg stories from klaus was it was just mind-blowing does and, he just kind of do they just naturally fall into conversation of like things I've done in my life or were people asking like, Oh, oh what was people, it like? Well, it, you know, at Arden, you know, we were sort of used to dealing with famous folks. I mean, we didn't, uh, we had a lot of clients that were local bands or not famous people, but we also did have obviously famous people coming to work there. Mm-hmm. So it, it was pretty natural. There at no point was he ever self-aggrandizing about any of it. He w- he was very gracious to answer questions, and then if something struck him, he might offer a story up, you know. But none of it was look at me. It was let me tell my story. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it, and it's per, you know, it's germane to whatever we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It but felt he, very organic we, as opposed to like let me regale you with my tales. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and he reminds me of this one time in the Ripperbahn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you're just eating chicken. He's like, oh, one time I had chicken with John. <laughs> well, and it was interesting because all, you know, he brought some numbered lithographs and let some of 
the engineers and musicians to have a couple. Oh, and that's I grabbed cool. one um and, and all the pictures, all the, the art that he's done are from specific instances. Like mm-hmm. he didn't make up a scenario and draw it. The one I got is they're sitting in a bar in Hamburg and they, you know, obviously they've taken a bunch of prellies and they're kind of coming down from playing and speeding. <laughs> and uh he said they were just talking and they didn't realize the sun had come up outside so it gets to be six seven in the morning somebody pushes the door open to the bar that's dark inside and all this sunlight comes streaming in and he was like we're all like vampires like, <laughs> you know, light, you know? Um, because they you know they've been up all night and all that stuff but the picture is that the guys at the table the door opening with the light coming in so that made it real special and also he was gracious enough to Everybody else was bringing him a copy of Revolver to sign since, as we all know, he did the sure. amazing artwork for Revolver. And But he didn't play on it. And I knew the story about EMI paid him like 60 pounds for his work. Right. And that was about all I got for it, right? Mm-hmm. So I had a copy, a mint original pressing of John Lennon Live Peace in Toronto. And I wanted him to sign That's something cool. he played on right. because he's an amazing bass player, mm-hmm. you know? He played on John's records, George records, Ringo's records, Carly Simon, uh, Lou Reed. I'm leaving more cool stuff out, but you get the gist. And uh, so I brought and plus it has that beautiful blue sky with yep. the one cloud in the corner. So I got him to sign my my live piece in Toronto record. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so but he really is as gracious and generous as every interview you've seen with him uh indicates yeah uh, that that was a drink and I, I had my acoustic up there um just in case anybody needed to use it i've got a epiphone j160 which is you know sort of beatles lineage mm-hmm. and um at one point i was playing i was trying to remember the chords to beware of darkness mm-hmm. and i got too mixed up like flipped them around he's like and he heard me from the other room and came in and he goes oh no 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 it's blah 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 <laughs> like he knew immediately wow you know and he, he, he was being nice not ugly about right, it right 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 <laughs> what a dude he that's still great has an ear on top of that you know how cool man <laughs> that's so cool that was a dream come true he also had this he had a brick a, a book uh, published in germany and it's in german so it doesn't do me any good to get a copy but there's <laughs> illustrations in there and there was an illustration of john hanging out of a window in whatever wherever they were staying in hamburg and you know they stayed across from this uh cathedral mm-hmm. uh it's on at least one of the trips and one he said one morning john wakes up and he He's, you know, he's got a white T-shirt, so he puts the white T-shirt on backwards, so the collar is kind of up on his Adam's apple. You know, <laughs> he's got it's on backwards T-shirt, and then he gets his uh, black jacket and puts that on backwards. Sort of looks like a, a, you know, a priest's collar with the black jacket mm-hmm. and then the white trim from the T-shirt up above it. And he said he, well, I don't. This may not make it to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But he said, then he took a big piece of cardboard and drew a crucifix with Jesus up on the cross and a huge dick. (laughs) (laughs) And hung out the window, waving that and preaching in mock German to people walking by. And so the illustration is like 
you're looking at them sideways and there's the wall in between. So you see on, on the right side, he's hanging out of the window with the collar and all that. And then the back side is just him and tidy whiteies Cause he didn't have any pants on. <laughs> he just, and he's just hanging out the window. And in the illustration, Klaus left out the crucifix, but you can see he's holding something right. up. And, you know, but yeah, to hear that story from Klaus himself, uh, is uh, an all-time high. Oh man. yeah, that's 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 <laughs> that's legendary time right there. Good grief! Oh my, oh my god. Well, let me yeah. let me get you with a few rapid fires, and then we're gonna wrap up. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. Thinking cap on. All right, cool. Uh, yeah. Rapid fire questions. Here we go. Favorite Beatles song? Man, I saw that you warned me about that in an email, and I just I don't I don't have one. I but I'll tell you the the White Album era. Uh, Paul's Hey Jude is just so amazing, and I'm So Tired uh, is amazing. Um, the harmonies in this boy are gorgeous. Yes. Mm. Um, uh, what, what am I leaving off? Uh, Norwegian Wood uh, is amazing. Yep. Yes. Uh, I love John's vocal on Anna. Yes. I listened to um, Lovely Rita the other day, and just John's acoustic work on that is wonderful. I mean, there's very little, you know, the bottom of the barrel for me is like Mr. Moonlight and, and Revolution 9, and I enjoy those, too. Yeah, that's one of the things I keep having <laughs> to, like, remind people. Tell her that, yeah. you know. Like, and I, that's one of the things I have to, like, always tell people with this, with the ranking is, like, I don't dislike any song on this list. I yes, enjoy exactly. all of them, and I've purchased all of them in several formats yeah. many times. Like, this is not a bad or, or this is not a negative at any point. Um, right. So, obviously, favorite album then is the White Album, I'm going to guess. I'd have to go with that, although Hard Day's Night and Revolver are, are close runner-ups. I love it. Um, personal favorite Beatles memory for you? Working with Klaus I, would probably be up there for me if I were you. Yeah, I'd have to say that. And just more generally, just the joy that they brought me. I've never really gotten tired. I've gone through phases of listening and not listening, but I've never gotten tired of them. And they always bring me some some joy. It's like they're magical beings, you know. They. <laughs> It's even like they talk about, the, you know, I remember George, somebody said it's, or Paul was talking to George Martin and he was like, you know, it almost seems like the Beatles were like other people, not us. You know, it was just something that happened mm -hmm. and it lived forever. Unfortunately, they won't and we won't. Well, who wants to live forever? Unless you're Oasis. But, uh, yes. <laughs> but you know, just, just, they're still spreading joy around, you know, and their basic message was pretty much peace and love, which I'm still trying to learn how to be like that. So, yeah. Especially in these current times. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Especially. Well, Adam, anything going on right now? You want to throw a plug in? What are you working on? What's your What's your project at the moment? Man, my two big, uh, huge accomplishments that I'm so proud and happy to have been involved in. Don Bryant, who is a Memphis soul music legend, mm -hmm. um, just put out a record that I engineered. Um, you know, Scott engineered some, and Matt Rossbang mixed it. But uh, but we cut it all over Scott Bomar's Electrophonic in Memphis. And Don Bryant, for those who don't know, worked with Willie Mitchell, um, who was responsible for High Records and all the Al Green tracks, Ann Peebles. Mm -hmm. And Don is married to Ann Peebles, and he also composed her uh, classic, I Can't Stand the Rain. Over. 
And Don is, I believe he's 78 now, and he's still spry. There's the new Don Bryant record, You Made Me Feel. And then the other big deal for me is the new Low Cut Connie record that's coming out soon. Mm -hmm. We worked on that record for three years at three or four different studios. Cut like 30 tracks. Adam Wiener, uh, the fearless leader, uh, produced. We helped co-produce. And uh, he's been releasing songs you know, every couple weeks. So a few are out that you can listen to. The album's called Private Lives. Uh, and uh, the act Low Cut Connie. Adam does a live um, uh, broadcast on all social media platforms on Thursdays and Saturdays with Will. He's been in the band for a long time. And I love him too. So if you get the, you know, check out the Don Bryan, uh, keep up with Low Cut Connie. And if you want to see him online, they're, they're up there a couple nights a week broadcasting from Adam's house. So beautiful. Those it's, are my major accomplishments. It's so <laughs> great. Like the amount of music that is available to consume right now, just with being in quarantine. And, you know, so many musicians are just like, well, I have to perform because it's what I do. So they're like, we'll just do it on the internet instead of in a, a club or a, you know, yeah. whatever. So it's like, it's so cool to like sit on our front porch with a cocktail and like enjoy some amazing music from people all over the country and all over the world, just because this Absolutely. is what we do now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing though. Nobody will, music will never, people as a species will never tire of music. And yeah. there's always going to, making music and always going to be people who want to hear music and you know even though the internet destroyed some things it created others you know and you can't fight the march of technology so you have to adapt and make it work for you and your fans you know when you're an artist so yeah uh, and that's what i'm lucky about as a recording engineer i mean there's no major labels with huge budgets that i deal with but there's always bands that have music that need to be recorded and could use a little bit of uh guidance you know and a good engineer so mm -hmm. adam hill thank you so much man this has been a wonderful conversation i hope you've enjoyed it yeah i'll do another one if you know if opportunity uh, i will have you back in yeah. a heartbeat i hope at some point um once we can travel the country safely and healthy again you know oh, we, can, we can do it in person <laughs> either have y'all yeah. here in new orleans or we'll yeah. come back up to visit you guys in memphis we we miss All you guys right, up there Bring some tasso with you if you do that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, it, why not both? Because we love Memphis and they love New Orleans. So I feel like we can uh, we can just do both. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, part one and part two. I love it. We'll make it happen. Yes. I love you, brother. Thank you so much for doing this with us today, man. Uh, yeah, I love you guys, too. Hopefully, like you said, we'll do it in person next time. So, But if not, hey, call me. That's Adam Hill, everybody. A big hand for Adam. Yes, thank you, Adam. Love that man. Yes. How about hanging out with Klaus Vorman? That is pretty rad. Getting those those hot goss stories. <laughs> I had no idea he even did that. Yeah. I totally missed that. I remember he mentioned it part of his life. when we first worked with him uh, a few years ago. And I think he sent me, there was there's a video somewhere where Klaus did like a video plug for Ardent talk, like for like an anniversary or something like that. I would also like to see that lithograph that he got. Yeah. I'm going to see if he can to... shoot us a picture. We can throw that up on on Facebook and Instagram. That's so cool. Yeah. Now that I know the story behind it, I have to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love how he talks about how hard it is to pick favorite Beatles songs and like how it just depends on your mood. Yes. Because like I've made this ranking, I've made this list and I look at it daily at this point and sometimes I'm second guessing things. <laughs> 
and I'm trying my best to not change things around. Yeah. Um, is I I feel like my top five, my top ten, maybe my top twenty are pretty concrete. I know my top five are definitely concrete. Okay. Um, I the I feel like I'm really trying hard to not shuffle the others though. Ooh. I've I've been steadfast like and strong like, so far. I feel like you need to like lock the spreadsheet. Like I don't know how it. to do that with technology. <laughs> Can you do that for I me? Do it for you. Co-host duties. <laughs> Producer. Yes. Co-producer. <laughs> I love it. Well, this has been a good one. I think I'm excited about it. Yes. That's yeah. Great. Our next episode. It's always nice to like talk about your favorites in the Beatles and Big Star. Like, yeah, I, you're Two actually wearing bands. a Big Star shirt right now. I don't know if you meant to do that. For it was Adam unintentional. Today. <laughs> it was just clean, and in the, in the it was the next shirt in my uh, in my drawer today. Yes, but uh, I love it. It's appropriate. Well, the next episode is coming soon. Going to be a doos. We're working on a whole bunch of episodes right now, y'all, because we're just getting started on this. So, looking forward to getting this out to everybody. If you're enjoying these podcasts please shoot us an email at rankingthebeatles at gmail.com. Um, also, Facebook and Instagram, Ranking the Beatles. Have an idea for a guest? Shoot us an email. Let us know what you think, who you think would be a good person to have these conversations with, and uh, we will do our best to make it happen. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Smash that subscribe button as hard as you possibly can on whatever... Don't, don't break your phone, Don't though. break your phone you or your You can lightly touch it. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. Touch sensitivity has <laughs> improved tremendously over the last few years. <laughs> But um, tell all your friends about it, man. We uh, we have a good time doing this. We hope you guys enjoy listening to it. All right. Well, everybody, have a good week. We'll see you next week. I'm Jonathan. I'm Julia. See you next time. This is Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Adios.